this is one level but i think that dreams are not only ours i think that dreams belong to humanity as well the ideas are just floating around out there in the universe waiting for the right person to come along you know really coming down to this place that we are all connected as within so without as above so below hello dreamers welcome to what do they mean the podcast series where we the dream collective interview creative beings whose work has been inspired by dream psychology as we explore the symbolisms of dreams in art. This week's episode features Martine Fournier Watson, a writer from Montreal in Canada, where she earned her master's degree in art history after a year in Chicago as a Fulbright scholar. She recently published her first novel, The Dream Peddler, about a traveling salesman who arrives to sell dreams to a town disturbed by a child's disappearance. We will be exploring Martine's creative process in relation to dreams, as well as her wider influences, how aspiring dreams are a strong source of inspiration and how collaboration or lack of can affect an artist's work and ambitious dreams. Thank you. Um, thanks for talking to us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm just sitting at home, you know, enjoying my pandemic. So oh, nice. <laughs> I wasn't busy. <laughs> yeah, I are you in lockdown where you are now then? Um, no, we're not locked down. I'm in Michigan. And so I don't know. They describe it as phase four. I, I really don't know what that means. We had, we had some success. Yeah, with like uh, flattening the curve. And so then and things have started to reopen. You have to wear masks, you know, if you mm-hmm. if you go into a building. I feel like, well, you know, it's America, so it's going horribly. <laughs> but yeah, my, my little part of the world is not too bad. Yeah, I'm allowed to go out if I want to. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Sounds fairly similar to here, really. Yeah. Are you guys in London or boats are you? Uh, me and Phoebe are in Bristol, and okay. Gwyn's in Wales. In Wales, yeah. Oh wow! Okay. So basically, today we're going to be exploring like how dreams can have a relationship with our writing, um, because like in our music, we definitely try to use these odd themes and imagery that usually occur in our own dreams and other people's, because we find it can add this element of spirituality and depth into our own writing. Um, and one of the interesting things about dreams is like when, especially when someone else can relate to the idea and how symbolic it can be. Um, yeah. I don't know if you found this in your own writing. Have you, like, have you been inspired by dreams? Oh, um, you know, not really. I was, I was thinking about that question uh, when you guys sent me your list of questions. But I, my own dreams tend to be so mundane. Um, I read somewhere once that that, (laughs) this is a sign that you're a contented person if your dreams are really boring. So I'll I'll take it as a positive, but yeah, I mean, occasionally I have stress dreams just like anybody or, or uh, once in a while I get a really fun wish fulfillment dream, you know, I'm dating a movie star or whatever, but a lot of the time I'm literally like, I'm just in the grocery store and I'm looking for the oranges. And it's, 
So maybe that is why I was kind of drawn to the idea of exploring dreams that are a little more rewarding than what I tend to get at night. Um, yeah, I can't really go to my own dreams for inspiration, unfortunately. Mm. So why, why exactly, why the theme of dreams as a, as a stimulus then? Well, for this particular book, um, I, I have, you guys are familiar with um, Anne of Green Gables, I assume, by Ellen Montgomery. Do you know those stories? Mm, no, yeah. Just yeah. a little, yeah, I mean, she is world renowned, but it just depends on the person. Um, I'm from Canada originally, so, and she was a Canadian author, uh, writing in the early 20th century mostly, so she was, heavy on my radar and Anna Green Gables was a, a long series of children's books that she did but she also wrote other stuff and she had a trilogy um, called Emily of New Moon which is about an orphan um, who goes to live with family at a farm and um, she from from a very young age she knows she wants to be a writer a professional writer and um, there's this I guess it's in the in the second book in the trilogy. There's a funny little scene where she's there's a big snowstorm and she's trapped in a cabin with some of her friends and the boy that she happens to be in love with and he he just sort of starts musing about in the voice of a peddler who's who's selling dreams. It's very much out of nowhere, but anyway, it sparks this idea in her for a book about such a character. Um, she's only like 14, so she doesn't try to write it at the time, but she sketches out the, the idea, just maybe an outline. And then in the third book of the trilogy, she's much older and she's starting to make her career as a writer by publishing short stories and stuff. She comes across this old idea that she had and she writes her first novel and she calls it A Seller of Dreams. Um, and she, it's, I mean, this is a long time ago, right? So in order to try and get it published, she's just kind of, she types it out and boxes it up and sends it off to some publishers because that's what people used to do. Um, she gets rejected three times and she's quite disheartened, which always makes me laugh now because now that I've had experiencing in the world of publisher, I think, man, mm -hmm. if you get discouraged after three rejections, you're not going to make it. <laughs> but she, um, she asks an older, wiser friend of hers, this man who is secretly in love with her, of course, um, she trusts his opinion. She gives him the book to read. And she says, look, I've been rejected a few times with this book. And I'm just not sure, you know, will you read it? Tell me if there's anything there. If you tell me it's, um, if you tell me it's worth pursuing publication, you know, I'll keep going and I'll keep trying. But if you tell me that it's no good, I'm going to burn it. And so he takes it away and reads it. And he does think that it's good. But um, he's jealous of the book. You know, he feels like it took her away from him while, while she was writing it. She wasn't paying attention to him. He's kind of warped. He's, he's not, you know, a psychologically sound person. So because of that jealousy and because he doesn't want her to have this kind of success, he brings the book back to her and he tells her, no, I'm sorry. You know, you're just too young to write anything good. This is a flight of fancy that no one is ever going to be interested in. It's just a modern day fairy tale. It makes no sense. She tells her it isn't good and she does burn it. And so as a young, I read these books as a teenager and this idea of that book that never got to be just somehow, you know, it just burrowed its way into my brain and I, it drove me nuts that you never, 
it sounded like such a cool idea, but you never got to know anything. You didn't know any details about what the book was, right? And so that's really where that idea came from. I just kind of stole it <laughs> from Ella Montgomery because she, she, I thought she had come up with a really fascinating premise that I'd never seen anybody do. And so I, in my thirties, um, I was a stay-at-home parent when my kids were little, so for a long time. And finally, my youngest was off to kindergarten, and I suddenly had a lot of time on my hands. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to see if I can write that book that I always wished had a real life, you know, outside those pages. Mm. So that is, yeah, it had nothing to do with my own dreams, unfortunately. <laughs> that but sounds that, like quite a magical process, though, that kind of taking ideas from another place and another time, almost. Yeah, exactly. I did another interview where... Um, with uh, Caroline Donahue and she said something I think she got the notion from uh, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert this idea that some ideas are just floating around out there in the universe um, and waiting for the right person to come along you know kind of a fanciful notion but yeah she sort of thought I think this yeah the dream peddler book initially by this one person but she never did anything with it and then you came along and I was like yeah I guess so I just it stayed with me for decades mm. so yeah I had to I couldn't just let it go yeah I think that also that thing of um of taking taking ideas from somewhere else because that happens a lot um in when you're writing music is that you'll you'll hear ideas in other places and take them and then once you once you start manipulating them they just come, become something completely different and become your own version of that thing. Yeah, exactly. I had no, I don't plot books out before I write them. I'd like to just kind of dive in. And so, yeah, I had no idea where that idea of a, a person selling dreams would take me. Mm. And I just kind of, yeah, thought it was very interesting. Mm. Actually, it was, it was tough. I, I ended up thinking that Ella Montgomery was very smart to just give people the title and really not worry about trying to, trying to imagine the shape that a book like that would take. Mm. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Do you personally relate to any of the characters and how selling the dreams affects them and stuff? Hmm, do I personally relate to them? I think I mostly relate to them maybe the mother characters in the book. Well, I mean, like I think a lot of authors would say, in some ways there's kind of a little piece of me in almost all of them. You know, I, I love them all and they kind of came out of my imagination and they're always, I always recognize little aspects of myself, like the Christina character, the, the girl, you know, longing for love, but not knowing how to find the right person and always crushing on the wrong person. I mean, that was, that was so me when I was growing up. I was really shy. I went to this private all-girls school. So even talking to boys, like this foreign concept to me. So I was very much a late bloomer. And I really identified with her in that sense that she, of course, she has a crush on the most handsome and popular boy in town because it, that's what you do, right? When you're young and you don't know to look for a person who might be a little less obvious but much better suited to you. Yeah. And I guess that's pretty common, right, with teenagers. So, yeah, I that was how that was how Christina kind of came to me, or just the idea of the way I came up with 
the characters was mostly once I had the idea of Robert, the dream peddler, and Evie, my my female protagonist, I real I just I started the book by trying to think about well, if such a person showed up in town and they were offering dreams to sell, what kind of dreams would people want? And so in trying to guess at that was how how I got going. I thought, well, I bet there could be a young woman, yeah, who's on the cusp of getting married, and she, but she wants to know who is it going to be, or she wants to have some kind of prophetic dream about that. But yeah, I think I was going to say at first, personally identifying with the characters, I think probably the mothers, um, and that was where Evie came from. I made her son nine because my son was nine when I started writing it. Um, yeah. He's 15 now, how time passes, but he was quite young. And I've, I remember hearing somewhere, I think this is so true that writers often explore the things that most terrify them. Mm. And um, I've been lucky not to have any real significant losses, you know, in my life so far. I've lost grandparents, but nobody kind of out of the natural order of things and, and nobody who was was very very dear and close to me and of course as a mother that i could not imagine anything worse happening than, than losing a child and so i think that must have been where that came from that impulse to sort of well i'll explore this in writing <laughs> you know because and then just not avoid that this this never happens to me in real life mm. well, that's yeah. really interesting yeah maybe you could talk a little bit more about the, the writing process I guess as songwriters, uh, what you were saying there about um, what terrifies you, inspires your writing. But um, yeah, maybe you could go into that a little bit more. Yeah, like how do you um, how do you go about creating like really vivid depictions with your words? Oh right, yes, yeah, that's a great a great craft question. Um, and so I, I took some time to think about that. The coming, trying to come up with effective descriptions and imagery is something I've been doing for a long time. So it, and I think we get better with practice like any of that stuff, but I, I must've picked it up from the kinds of things I was reading growing up. But looking back, I've been doing that in my head since I was maybe like the teenage years. I'm the kind of person who we're just walking down the street. If I'm looking at a, you know, a group of trees fluttering or kids going by on their bikes, I, I'm often, my brain will just automatically respond with, huh, what else does that remind me of? You know, what's, what does that look like? So in a way it's like, I'm, I'm always writing. And I think my best, like the best advice I can give or trick that I use to try and keep descriptions like fresh, you know, and, and innovative is like, I never, I try to avoid ever going with kind of the first turn of phrase or cliche that, that comes to mind. Right. And I always sort of, I think that really strong writing comes from language that tries really hard to be accurate. Um, and I, instead of just falling back on kind of like wrote, phrases that we that we commonly hear and that we're used to and I read once in a craft book a great example so I'll use it here I wish I could give credit but I don't I have no memory of of what I was reading when I when I came across this but it was such a brilliant illustration there's the writer of the book was teaching a class 
and one of the students was working on a piece that was like a personal memory, the time that his arm had been very deeply cut in some kind of accident. And when he described the blood coming out of his arm, he just said something like the blood gushed, you know, or the blood was like running out like water from a, from a tap. And the teacher sort of picked up on that and said to him, can you stop and like slow down and think back for a minute was the blood really just gushing, you know, like, like water from a fall? Is that really what it was like? And the guy who was the author of the piece sort of thought about it. And he had to say, no, actually, he said it was like, when you looked at the blood coming out of my arm, it was, you could see it being pumped. It was coming out in spurts in time to the beat of my heart. Mm -hmm. And so he, you know, but he hadn't stopped to really think that through, right? He'd just fallen back on like a pat phrase that we use when we're describing something liquid that's pouring out of something. And so he was able to go back and revise his description and make it a lot stronger because it was so much more specific. Mm. And so that's, I mean, that I think is such a great example. And that's, that's what I always keep in mind, I guess, when I'm writing myself is and I get very particular about words. Once I'm editing, I do have to kind of sit with the thesaurus because when I can't, when I know I'm close to the word I want, but it's not, it's not quite what I mean. I spend a lot of time, right, trying to look for, for the word that really, really captures what I'm trying to say in terms of its definition and also, I guess, in terms of the tone and the rhythm of the sentence. But yeah, specificity, I think we have it's so easy now to, you know to to just fall back on the familiar and I think that yeah the writing that draws me and that I that I find the most strong is writing that tries to sort of avoid that yeah yeah, yeah I would agree finding the details in the writing it sounds really important like tuning into those really fine details within what you're looking at the imagery that you see yeah, I tend to be, that is exactly what I do. And I'm a really um, visual person. I, my background is like, I have a fine arts degree. That was my, my bachelor's and then I did a master's in art history. So maybe that's partly what it is too. Anything like that I find, and you guys as musicians must find this too. You probably listen to things really closely, much more closely than the average person, right? Because I, um, yeah. So when I'm, when I'm sitting and writing, I often enter the scene by picturing it in my head because I, I'm so visual. And yeah, I try to, I zoom in on little details that I, that I use to sort of try to ground the reader in the scene. I have a tendency to do um, a lot of description, like too much, because that's how I find my way into the, into the book. And then, I, then when I'm editing, I have to kind of cut it back because I don't want to bore people. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> that's, it's my favorite part. Yeah, I, lo I loved your way of describing in the book. I thought it was oh, great. Yeah, I mean, it either works for people or it doesn't, right? I, we've tried to be upfront about it's, it's literary, you know, his slow moving so that readers don't pick it up thinking it's going to be some kind of page turning race to the finish. You know, because yeah, I'm definitely a person who I will linger. Yeah, you're right. It's it's in those details. 
do you think that dreams offer relief from day-to-day life and if this is the positive thing about dreams i mean i guess this is why you i mean apart from talking about ellen montgomery but like you know just why you would use that as a concept right i i mean yeah that's an interesting question and i well as you know now from my confession about my own dreams yeah (laughs) my own (laughs) dreams are not particularly entertaining so yeah i i I think what i did i feel like i kind of took some poetic license with that um the, the idea that I'm not sure for most of us that dreams are so much a form of escapism as they are just, you know, they tend to be sort of jumbled. They often don't make a lot of sense. We often don't even remember them. So I think, I think their usefulness, yeah, is more like that chance for our brains to, to just sort of process what we've been through right during the day. And sometimes if we're worried about something, dreams are really helpful, I think, for our brains in turn out, I know this has been studied, but they just help your brain sort memories and, and sort what you've been going through. And sometimes they can be helpful if you remember them. You might, you know, figure something out through a dream that you hadn't been able to get to with your conscious mind. But as far as escaping, yeah, I feel like that was something I kind of made up with along with the idea that if, if there's a peddler, if he's selling these dreams, then they would have to offer something more. Yeah, and that of course being where the entertainment factor or the escapism would come in. I mean, these were not people who had access to movies, you know, Um, although they might have had, they probably had a little bit of radio or, um, but yeah, all they had was books. So these were not people who had any other avenue for escape. and he was kind of offering them that. And so the dream sort of became something else in that sense. Then what I kind of think of them as being in our, in our real everyday lives, right? They took on a different, a different meaning in that different context. Did you always want to be a writer? Oh, that's a great question. I think I did like off and on yeah I was definitely into writing from a very young like elementary school age and was yeah just always very creative and praised you know for my efforts by teachers which which always helps I kind of I was never sure what I was going to do I went through also a a number of years in high school when I, I wanted to be an actor and I was really into that I did a lot of theater Um, And I took voice lessons, Um, I sing, and of course that kind of goes hand in hand sometimes with with acting. And and so I don't know, as I got older, I kind of left the the acting dream behind. I think I knew on some level that even if I could make a living at it, which I know could be really tough, um, that might not be the lifestyle that I craved. You know, like I said, I was, I did end up choosing to be home with my kids and my family was, was really always the most important thing to me. So I couldn't really picture, yeah, if I were really acting, you know, in theater and rehearsing during days and performing in the evenings, I, I think I just knew, I figured out at some point that I was never going to seriously pursue that. So then I, yeah, and then I took that, I diverted to 
to visual arts, I think I just had a lot of trouble making up my mind, you know, because I've always loved so many different creative things. And I also decided that it didn't really matter. I, I like to fly by the seat of my pants, you know, in life and in writing, I guess. It's the same thing for me. So I, I went off almost on a whim. That sounds so spoiled, but you know, I was. I mean, I was very fortunate. My parents could pay for my school. And in Canada, it's it's um, it's not nearly as expensive, of course, to go to college as it is here in the States. So I had all these opportunities and yeah, I chose visual arts because I thought it would be the most challenging thing that I could do. And I knew that I could keep writing on the side, right? One of the great things about writing is that nobody has to teach you, you know, and you don't, you don't have to take classes unless you want. So yeah, very roundabout. And then eventually I came back to it much later. Yeah, nice. I can actually kind of relate to that. I also wanted to act. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I mean, I've always, uh, I've played instruments like since like age seven onwards. But yeah, so it's weird when you're creative. I think you kind of want to dip into a lot of different mm. things. And then I was an artist at 15. And <laughs> I went back to being a musician, you know, so. Um, yeah. I think that they play into each other very well, don't they? All these different mediums. And I think that's kind of what we're trying to capture within this project through collaboration with different people uh, to make it like more than just the music. Like, how can you depict these dream worlds essentially in different ways and through different uh, methods and uh, collaboration? Yeah. Yeah. It would be interesting to uh, hear your thoughts on collaboration and maybe experience of collaborating if you have well i was just yeah i was just thinking as you were talking yeah the crossover between all the arts is can be so wonderful um i feel like as you're yeah the way they feed into each other it reminded me that you know a surprising number of professional writers that i know of are also musicians um usually is, you know, on more of a hobby level, but I, Stephen King is always talking about this band that he's in it. It doesn't surprise me at all because really fine writing has a musicality to it, right? I mean, part of what good writing is, is having an ear for the rhythm of the language and, and how you're carrying your readers along, right, on that sea of language. And so to be musical and, and also to be a writer that they just seem to go kind of hand in hand for me. So I get what you're saying. I have really never, I'm kind of a lone wolf person. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying, I'm thinking back like, boy, I, I really like to have full creative control. And I don't know that I've ever collaborated really with anyone on a project because nobody, no one has ever asked me. Um, but I've also, yeah, I've never sought that out. For me in high school days, my worst memories are those times in class where I was forced to work on a group project. You know, I, I like to just do everything on my own, which I guess, I mean, yeah, choosing to be a writer, I guess that's good. I, I picked my occupation well. <laughs> I spend a lot of time in my own head. What about you guys? Have you collaborated with people outside your group? Yeah, we're, we're, I think what we're interested in doing is is working between different mediums. So, for example, collaborating with artists or 
um, or dancers, or so sort of bringing different mediums together and seeing how they can complement each other. Right. Mm. One of our first gigs we did, we collaborated with a family friend who's an artist and she was doing live um, projections whilst we were performing. And it was just really lovely, that thing of something being live and created there and then right. in response to the music. So to do more like that would be fascinating and lovely, I think. Yeah, it sounds, mm. yeah, that because each having the two media together, each one can enhance the other and play off the other, yeah, and really enrich mm. what's going on. Yeah. yeah. When, when you were acting, did you, I suppose you probably had some collaboration in some form then? Oh, sure, yeah, but I mean, I never really, uh, I mean, I was only involved in, in amateur efforts, but yeah, I, I, used, I was always in, in the school play at my high school, and then there was also, there was this wonderful children's theater group in Montreal called Rathbone, um, because it, it was run by a, a woman who was um, a descendant of Basil Rathbone. That was sort of her claim to, to fame. And so I would do that on the weekends and, and we would put on plays. Um, so yeah, sure. And that is something that I, that I miss now that I'm just sitting alone on my couch, you know, writing is that, um, that sense of a very close-knit, emotionally intense community, you, you know, when you're acting in a play together, you really bond so tightly. And then it's so strange because when the play is over, I mean, not so much with high schoolers, of course, because we still continue to be friends and have class together, but that there's, I would always go through kind of a grieving process when the play was finished, you know, and we weren't getting together anymore and rehearsing and because it was, it was such a wonderful, productive and exciting time and you had so many emotions going on. And so, yeah, that collaborating in that sense and having a group was really, yeah, was really wonderful and something that I definitely miss. But then when you're collaborating for writers is always different anyway each person still kind of has to come up with their own part of the project individually. And then they kind of collaborate as they try to put everything together, or at least as far as I know. Do you have um, like a main kind of dream for yourself now as in like an ambition dream? Not, <laughs> <laughs> Not an I am asleep and drooling dream. Um, <laughs> oh boy, that's a great, you know, I'm, I'll keep it simple. Yeah, my really my my dream. Well, my all I want to do at the moment is is be lucky enough to to put out a second book. Um, I have a book written. Is it took me a really long time to even to get the dream peddler published. So in the meantime, of course, I was working on other stuff. Um, and. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard when your your creative ambitions have to come up against you know commercial concerns. It's publishing is so different from just writing, right? I mean, this is obvious, but I feel like I have to say it. Um, 
is I have no control over whether my work is commercially sustainable for a publisher. And so I'm kind of in that sort of dead zone in between where like I, I put out this book and that was the realization of course of a, of a big dream. I was, I felt so fortunate to, to find an agent and then to, to, to be published um, and also by a really big publishing house. I wouldn't really have expected that. So I've already realized, yeah, a, a major dream in that sense. I mean, when I dream, I can dream big, right? I'm, I'm at the National Book Awards, you know, in New York City. I, yeah, the Oprah's stamp on a seal on my book. I mean, I have huge dreams, but I, those are just for fun, right? And I don't, I don't have any expectations where that kind of thing is concerned. But yeah, all I'm, I'm just still writing away and, and hoping that I'll be lucky enough, yeah, to put out another book. Because this one was not kind of any kind of big success. And so it getting a second book out is going to be a little bit of an effort, more effort than I, than I hoped it would be initially. But we'll see. But you have, you have something written, you have something in the works. I do. And I mean, it's, it's done. The way my contract was set up, the, this is common, like I, Penguin just published the one book, but there's an option in that contract, right, where they kind of get the the first dibs on whatever you produce next, especially if it's in, if it's in the same, the same vein, um, same genre and all that. Um, but yeah, it, it just, it's complicated. I mean, my editor actually left and I, my book was put in the hands of, of a different editor. And I don't even, I don't know that that affected anything because it wouldn't necessarily have, but yeah, when it came to, we, we gave them that book as the option. And the editor, the new editor just kind of came back and said, well, yeah, you know, your, your book isn't doing that well. <laughs> We're getting lots of returns. And as far as this new piece goes, it's not really very urgent and propulsive. Um, I think those are, that's a direct quote. Those words are kind of etched in my brain now after reading this rejection. I think she was trying to say that because the, the commercial performance of the dream pedal was kind of lackluster that that I would have to produce something fairly commercial, you know, um, a little bit more thrilling than what I had done in order for them to take it. So they sort of, you know, they weren't going to offer on it or sort of released from, from relations with them. And so that then it becomes a matter of, well, my agent and I are trying to sort of set up and make it a little more exciting so that when we go on submission to to editors it, we might get a more positive response than we did from penguin so that's kind of where i mean that's a little insight into sometimes how publishing works we're kind of like back at square one where we would have been there's no more relationship with that particular publisher so we're just kind of like start over with the new book so hopefully, you know, hopefully it will go somewhere, but I really, I couldn't say, I have no idea. Same. Good luck with it. <laughs> yeah, right. thanks. Yeah, yeah no, I fingers crossed. I, I'm Keep sure. Yeah, no, I, I'm sure it will. Like, you, you just have to really believe in yourself, to be honest. Like, I think I'm personally like my own highest critic in my head, you know, and as long as you're kind of pleasing yourself and you feel driven and you take in what, you know, you understand the feedback, but like, if you believe in what you do, then that's half the battle, really. Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah, and it can be hard. I mean, when you're facing um, 
when you get feedback, critical feedback, yeah, keeping your, just staying true to your own vision, it can be a little tricky, but yeah, when you feel confident that what you're producing is, is really close to what you want it to be, then yeah. yeah. You just take the bits of criticism that are helpful and try to leave the rest. Who, who are your uh, biggest influences or favorite authors? Gosh, yeah, I should just keep like a list handy for when people ask me. Like, there's so many, right? And then, like, so just off the top of my head, I mean, at the moment, I'm reading The Lowlands by Jen Bellagiri. And, uh, you know, I mean, she's just talk about gorgeous writing and imagery. I mean, you can't go wrong with her. So I, I love her. I love Donna Tartt. Um, Joyce Carol Oates, she's a great writer and, and her her characters are always so so vivid and just just pull me in. So yeah, I mean, I could go on and on. I love Sally Rooney. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. She's not everyone's cup of tea, but I am, I read uh, Normal People before mm -hmm. her first conversation with friends and she just has a way. I'm not even sure, I would love to, I should sit and read and see if I can analyze what she does, but I find just her characters really just pull me in. I find her writing so absorbing. Mm -hmm. And even though her, I, her books are fairly, I mean, she's everything that I sort of want to be. They're quiet, you know, that really what you're reading about when you're reading Sally Rooney is what's going on in, in people's interior lives. There's not a whole lot of out, outward action, right? Mm -hmm. They're not plotty books they're very much with the characters so yeah I admire her a lot mm. quite relatable I guess that's what people like yeah yeah they're exactly normal people I mean it's a perfect title because there is something sort of very kind of grounded and, and ordinary feeling about her characters even though of course they all have their own particular life details that make them unique but yeah, that's, that's what I strive to be. I want to be that person who makes the little mundane details interesting. Because they are for me, I guess, you know. And that's what I wanted the Dream Paddler to be. I mean, it's got this fantastical premise, but at the same time, a lot of the magic, I hope, is just coming from the whole world. You know, the snow outside or pouring the cup of tea. I, I wanted it all to be kind of infused with magic. Mm. So, yeah. I suppose as the writer, you kind of hold that power, don't you? To turn the sort of mundane, normal things into something that can be quite magical. Yes, I mean, that's what I hope. That's what I, yeah. That's what I love best. Mm. It's just taking, yeah, those everyday little moments and things that anybody might see looking out their window and kind of describe them in such a way that they they pop out they stop being just part of the background and kind of come forward mm. so yeah mm. keep working on that that's yeah but that's yeah that's where I hope to fit in what is um like a commercial sort of thing in um literary terms you know in commercial for music it's like pop music and you know. right well I would say 
I mean, anything not literary, you know, literary is a genre in itself, but those are the books that people would describe as being kind of more character driven, often slower paced, award winning, right? Because of the beauty of the writing, but, but sometimes a little too slow and dull for the average reader. Although there are so many, you know, great literary books that have obviously had huge commercial success at the same time. I don't know what that magical formula is, but it would be great to know. But yeah, so when I, when I speak of work that's more commercial or like what I think, you know, my publisher, for example, would have loved if I could have done something a little more commercial. I think about like thrillers, you know, or, um, or the kind of women's fiction where, um, you know, you're Jennifer Weiner and it, your books are just extremely popular, even though, yeah, I mean, her books are definitely not, they're not spy thrillers. They're just about regular people, but she's, she, she describes, you know, her people in such a way and tells her interesting stories in such a way that they just become really popular. But I think the musicality of the language and, you know, imagery and word choice, that all kind of takes a back seat in something that's leaning more commercial, I'd say, or at least that's sort of the general definition. I hate to, I hate to make like generalizations. But yeah, something that would be a little faster paced with uh, higher stakes. Agents and editors love to talk about how higher your stakes in your book. <laughs> And so sometimes when you're just when you're just writing about say a marriage that's falling apart and all that's really at stake is the marriage that can I guess it can be a little bit harder to move that off the tables in stores. Um, you can make it feel important, of course, and that's that's the real trick. That's what I'm trying to get at right now. Yeah, with my second book with my agent. We talked a lot about it and she said, it's just a story of two 13 year olds and their friendship. And they each come from a family that's troubled in its own way. That's the, essentially what it's about. So nothing out of the ordinary and there isn't any kind of magic or dreams, anything like that going on in it. And she said, you know, all, your, all the things that are great about your first book are still there. It's still, you know, the descriptions and all your wonderful characterizations and it is interesting to reach. So I think it's more like, we don't need to increase the stakes. They just need to feel more important. It's so tricky mm -hmm. because it's all about, yeah, I mean, there's this little boy, he's, well, he's not little, he's 13. His mother walked out on the family and then six months later, she comes back. I just wanted to explore, to me, that's that's very high stakes. He's he's spent six months trying to sort of fill the hole, right? That she left this enormous hole in their lives. When she comes back, he doesn't know how to let her back in. And so one of the big sort of arcs of the book is watching this boy and, and sort of seeing, well, is he gonna, how will he evolve? Is he gonna be able, to do that and to open up to her again or trust her again. To me, that feels very important, but it is very interior. Like it's not a, it's not an apocalyptic book where their lives are at stake or anything like that, right? And so that's a trick. It's like, how do I, how do I translate how important that feels to me as I'm telling the story to, to the reader? So we'll see.
do you ever reach out via social media or anything oh yes yes i do i'm not the best so funny it's funny you should ask because i'm not i'm i'm of an age you know i'm 45 twitter was never really my thing i knew of it had no idea what was so great about it or why people were using it unless they wanted to follow celebrities right and but there's a whole writing community on there and you can you can have so much fun just connecting with other people and, and chatting with them and so as soon as we sort of sold this book or we had almost sold it and we're in negotiations i had a conference call with my agent and my editor and they both kind of they sort of ganged up on me and said you know you really need to be on twitter like just get on there make an account we'll introduce you to some folks and you'll get started and like, just trust us so that was my first i mean apart from facebook which all the old folks are on facebook yeah that was my first foray into uh getting in touch with strangers because of course on Facebook it's really more about just letting your friends and family follow you yeah. and from there I ended up eventually on Instagram as well although Instagram is not my strong suit and I mostly just use it to post pictures of my cat <laughs> <laughs> because I mean if you have a cat, how can you not share them on Instagram? <laughs> so and he was stray that we had just, he was wandering our neighborhood and we took him in. So he's very special to us. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I do. I've become, now I'm a total Twitter addict after sort of poo-pooing it and being like, oh, why would anybody be on Twitter? Yeah, now I'm just like sucked in just like the rest of the world. Mm. But I do love it. Yeah, I've been able to just, as you say, reach out, make contact with, with other writers and especially writers that I admire. That's so much fun Yeah, to follow them. Yeah, definitely. I should say if people want to find you on social media, what, what, what name do you go by? Yes, um, so my Twitter handle is at M Fournier Watson. It's like my first initial and then the two last names. And on Instagram, I would be Martine Fournier Watson. Just keeping it simple. It's nice. It's a name that never, it's so long, it never gets taken. <laughs> so I can always snatch it right up. Yeah. So yes, if you search for me by my name, you should, you should find me no problem. Great. Um, I was just going to ask if you could find out something about dreams or how they work or what inspires them? What, what would you like to know? If I could find out something mm. about dreams. Oh, that's, that's a really tough one. I mean, I did do a certain amount of research after I kind of wrote my first draft of the Dream Peddler, just making stuff up and making anything possible and writing whatever I felt like writing. And then I, I decided I should take a look into dreams and just see how far-fetched you know some of my ideas really were and it was so strange because what I actually discovered was that they weren't nearly as as far-fetched as I had thought I would I, I used this book and I, I do credit it somewhere in the acknowledgement section of a book called Our Dreaming Minds and I think the author's name is Robert Vandecastle a whole book and he goes through the whole history of dreams um 
and lab, more recent lab experiments that have been done with dreaming that just fascinated me, like telepathy. Can, could one person's mind, active mind, influence another person's dreaming mind? And it's bizarre because apparently this can happen. I feel like there's, that probably would be what I would want to pursue. Yeah, that um, finding out more about our brains are just, I think, capable of doing so much that we're, we're just sitting looking at the tip of the iceberg, right? I feel like, and there's stuff there that we're not really able to tap into. And maybe that's partly because we don't, we don't try, we can we're sort of dismissive of the potential. But yeah, I would probably want to know more about that. I just, I sort of, I didn't delve into like deep research on how to influence dreams. But that was, that book was a great place to start. Mm. Yeah, I've never tried to, to harness my own dreams or control them, but apparently you can train yourself and that's not surprising because as, I mean, as musicians and people who make art and I write as you, yeah, training is like 95% of the game for things that we want our bodies and brains to do, right? And I, apparently you can do a lot more with your dreams than you know, but you just have to make the effort, which I find fascinating. Like you can train yourself to try and have more lucid dreams where you're aware that you're dreaming, right? While it's going on, which we usually aren't. And there are ways to become more proficient at that, which I find really interesting. It made the whole like, notion of, in the dream peddler, of if you believe you're going to dream about something, you will. It made it much more, more believable <laughs> than I thought it would be after I read that book. It was very funny. You absolutely, you, yeah, you can. There's a thing called dream incubation, which is where just the sort of, five minutes as you're dropping off to sleep, you just focus all of your attention onto a certain thing that's happened in the day. And it's worked for me quite a few times. I've had a dream about that yeah. thing after that. That is amazing. Yeah, exactly, right? That's just, that's just fascinating to me. Have you ever had a lucid dream? I do have them occasionally. I mean, I'm not sure I can think of a specific example. Yeah, every, every so often. I mean, I guess like anybody else, I'm not usually aware from the outset, but there will be like a point in the dream where I'm thinking, oh yeah, that's okay. This is, this is just a dream. Not often, but sometimes. Mm -hmm. I've been having, I mean, I know I said initially my dreams are so boring and they usually are, but COVID has been really, um, fruitful <laughs> for my my dreaming like and then not in a fun way i'm definitely at i've had some crazy just bizarre dreams that clearly have to do with my my anxieties about spreading this and, and my children this always has to do with my children oh they have to go back to school and nobody is masked and we have to we are climbing over rooftops holding the science project with one hand to get to the school bus, right? Which is parked outside a cafe with tables of people eating. Like I clearly have a lot of anxiety right now about crowds and school and the maskless and so yeah, but that's been really funny. Mm. Yeah. 
I'll be looking forward to it because then I wake up from them sometimes and just ever wake up from a long dream and it was an anxious one and you're exhausted and you it feels like you were awake the whole time and you're like oh I can't believe I have to start my day because I was up all night guys I was scaling buildings with my kids science project on the back sorry I gotta take the day off it's so funny um, yeah so many people around the world are probably having those dreams which is just incredible unlike any other time we you know all going through the same things that is such a good point oh my god yeah that we're all sharing i mean jung would love that and talk about the collective unconscious thing right now oh and speaking of authors that i love because that's reminding me you're reminding me of a, a wonderful book the dreamers by karen thompson walker Especially since you are, you know, just interested in kind of exploring dreams and, and artists um, thinking about dreams and using them in their work. Oh, that is such a fantastic book. It's a, it's a dystopian about, um, well, about kind of a, not a pandemic, but an epidemic that, that begins on a college campus. And what happens is the sickness is people fall asleep and they, they don't wake up. And then after studying them, the scientists find that, well, they're having these really intense, long dreams. And then it becomes a question of, well, some people never wake up, but some people do, and they don't know why. A bit like, yeah, why do some people succumb, right, to an illness and, and others get better? She's a beautiful writer. Oh, she's, she's so good. And it's a wonderful book. And it's a really interesting look at... Uh, dreaming mm. so, yeah gotta recommend that mm. cool is there any more questions phoebe that you um no that's kind no. of i think there um, was there was one more which was which was just about um the i think just about how when you're if you're writing like taking the subject of dreams which i think although it's that very common thing of everyone having them it can seem to be something quite far-fetched and sort of you know it's dreamy and absurd but how did you manage to kind of maintain the tangibility whilst also exploring that sort of magic oh right yes I remember this question um I think part of it was that and I know it's funny I sometimes get um, negative feedback from readers who hoped that the dreams themselves and their ability to, to actually transform the lives of characters would be more of a focus in the book. And then they're, they're kind of disappointed when that's not the case. And that's perfectly fair. But I was really wary of, as you say, because of the nature of dreams and what they're really like, I was wary of having too many dream sequences in the book because they are so... They're like so unfettered. I mean, anything can happen, right? And so I feel like as an author, you want to use dreams very specifically to, to highlight aspects of your characters. If you think that using a dream is the best method, then go ahead and do it. But in, in the end, dream sequences are kind of like cheating, I find, because that they don't have to stick to, to any of the rules of reality. So I was, I was kind of cautious. And I think one time I, I sort of counted and I think there are only maybe four dreams that are 
um, described in any kind of detail in the book. And that was, yeah, that was a deliberate choice on my part because I didn't want to get lost, yeah, in kind of a quagmire or to have too many dreams from too many different characters. I did feel like, yeah, we needed to sort of stay grounded in the reality. And of course, the I also, I think, was able to get around it because I, I assumed that if, um, you know, dreams are usually so jumbled, they often don't make a whole lot of sense. You're just you're jumping from one thing to another and there can be very strange like substitutions, this person for that person or, or what have you, things that don't make a lot of sense. I guess I decided that if people were buying dreams with a specific purpose in mind, that that would kind of alter them, right? And they would, they would take on more of a, a real narrative sequence and be easier to follow. And so it's even in that way, I, I felt like the dreams in the book were just going to go ahead and present a little bit strange, but mostly grounded in, in stuff that might actually happen. Um, so they were kind of like, as I was saying, what I was really exploring in the book was Evie's loss and how she, she processes that. And, and Robert too, of course, is a character who has experience with loss. And so that the whole book really becomes more about the grief and the dreams were like a backdrop um, that the characters were moving against. Mm. So yeah, I think that was how I tried to organize it in such a way that the dreams wouldn't you know, take over and it, and it wouldn't become just kind of nonsensical. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think, and worth taking into consideration for our kind of project that, it, it, that we kind of use dreams as a, as a theme, but not to kind of just let it wash over the whole idea and just become a bit lost. So yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, I felt like it was ultimately, I mean, the dreams were, were great and useful as these tools and, and to show what different characters wanted or hoped for. But the real thrust of the story was always, of course, their waking life. And of course, the idea that you don't really ever know if Robert is really selling dreams or not. Like it, it could be magical or it could actually be just, yeah, the whole thing could just be completely realistic depending on how you look at it. Um, we were wondering, we, I don't think we asked you this in the questions, but we were wondering if you might be able to describe a dream for us, one that maybe stands out to you or one that you've had recently. Oh, describe a dream? Mm, as a kind of outro for the podcast. Yeah, well, there is that one. Let me just think for a second if there's anything more interesting that I've had lately than sure. the one where... Take your time. <laughs> I was waking up and just having to get my children... I just, I'll describe it because it's the only one that comes to mind and it was it was so nutty and it brought together so many different funny little aspects of our life but yeah it was this dream my children go to school in a in a totally different city long story but we're in sort of a small city and nearby in Saginaw is a, a public school for gifted and talented kids and so we opted to send them there but they it's a quite a long bus ride it's a good half hour away and so I take them very early in the morning down to a bus normally 
And then of course school was, was shut down. We never returned after spring break. And this was also right around the time that my son was supposed to go to a science fair and present his, um, his science project at a, you know, a regional fair. And that got canceled, which I was very grateful for because I didn't want to take him there in the middle of a pandemic. But it, we had just, we had kind of just, right? It was March. So we were only just aware of the dangers of that. And so in this dream, I'm, I'm not with my son. I don't know where, I'm, I'm, I have to get my daughter to the bus. And we are literally scaling the outside of a building, but kind of like with our bare hands, right? Because in the dream, of course, I don't need ropes or, or hooks or any of this stuff. And she's with me and that's a real, that's making me very anxious that I'm climbing over buildings with my daughter. And I am somehow, I've got my son's, you know, those giant foam boards. I mean, that's what they always have to use, right? I've got this either in one hand or strapped on my back. I don't even know how I'm carrying it because again, it's, it's dream logic, which I, I love and anything can go on. Well, eventually we finish climbing over these buildings and I, I'm, I reach the bus with my daughter. The bus is not in its usual spot. It parks in a lot that's empty at that hour of the morning. But of course that's not what's happening. We're on, we're on the edge of like an ocean. So that's really fun symbolism that there's water, which we don't have here. Um, I mean, well, I live near the Great Lakes, but you certainly can't see water from our town. And, and the bus is there. And instead of being parked in a lot, it's kind of half in the street and there's all these cafe tables because of course the other thing that's making me anxious right now is people all congregating with no masks on. And I'm very concerned about the crowds. And I also suddenly realized I have no idea where my son is and I, I need to get them on the bus. And there's all these people eating breakfast at these tables and Rachel, where's me? Where's your brother? And she's like, he's right there eating with his friends. And so he is somehow, he's just magically already at the bus, right? Without my help. And and this is where I sort of remember, I suppose I gave him this project, which, you know, I've been, I've been lugging. But, and it's this beautiful, sunny, gorgeous day. And I just remember standing there feeling absolutely terrified. And I, I think that just kind of encapsulates the whole, it was such a hilarious dream because it, it had the school bus on the science fair and just worrying about your children. And, and frankly, just worrying about people eating at restaurants <laughs> together. Somehow I threw that in there too. So it was a really funny dream. Mm. Nice. Well, thank you for sharing. You're thank welcome. You so <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for talking to us as well. It's been lovely. Yeah, thank you for having me on your podcast. It's been a real treat. Yeah, yeah, we really appreciate it. Uh, and you're, you're the first person we've interviewed so far, so. Oh, I feel very special. <laughs> you know, well, I wish you all the best with finding more interesting guests too. Thank you. Be sure to tune in. Yeah, we'll um, we'll send you the link to the podcast when it's all done and up. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with the next book. I'll Thank you. Keeping an eye out for it. Yeah, I'll be working away. Hopefully, you'll see it at some point. Cool. Well, thanks very much. Okay. You guys see you. too. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.